0: All right. We've looked at a lot of components of the uh, of the sermon, and uh, and today we look at application. And application is one of those topics that, uh, again, as you're starting to see a theme develop here, sermon making and sermon delivery is uh, is a very controversial subject. It's uh, it, it it is that because sermon. Uh, Sermon preparation is a real science. Uh, to prepare for a sermon and do it well and do it biblically is there is it's almost formulaic. Uh, you you we've got this. I've handed that out. Kind of the formula I follow when I'm uh, preparing to preach a sermon. The delivery of the sermon is far from science. The delivery of the sermon is more artistic. It's more um, subjective. It's more a personality, it's more uh, training, uh, but, but, uh, but also um, conviction and passion. And so when you mix science and art, which you do very rarely, uh, it's a, it's, it can be very controversial. And what we've been dealing with over the last uh, three lessons is, is really the art of our, part of it is the art, and that's where a lot of the controversy comes from. And today's no different. Application. We have extremes on both sides. We have people who believe preaching is only application, and so they go to a text, they give very little uh, ground or format of the text itself, and they just start telling you how to live life. And they they almost are 100% application. And then we have people who side on no application. And by that they mean... That it is the Holy Spirit's job to apply a text to a heart. It's our job to present the text. And to give, uh, to give the um, instruction from the text specifically. But not go further into this is how you live. and This, this is how you apply. But to, but to rather say this is what the text says. This is what God has commanded. And, and cease there. And so... You can see there's, there's, that's, a, that's a, broad, uh, a broad separation in a sense, and so you obviously would have some controversy. Let's look at application, and hopefully this will help at least give us a, an idea of uh, what we want to do here at Grace Fellowship. Application is what makes the sermon meaningful. Um, if you know the facts... It's not enough. You will, you, you will fall short if all you give is facts. Um, application makes, makes the text itself uh, consequ- consequential to the listener. It keeps them from saying, so what? When you get to the end of the sermon, if the co- audience's response is, so what? Uh, you failed as a preacher, right? Or a teacher. Or a parent. If you teach your children a text of the scripture and they leave the, the supper table saying, in their little minds who cares then, then you've really failed in your job as a parent because they, the reason they're asking that question you could say it's the fallen heart and that may be why they're asking the question but more often than not the reason they're asking that question is because you've not given them feet for the text you've not applied anything you've not called them to their responsibility application makes the sermon um, applicable or consequential to the listener. Secondly, application makes exposition legitimate. In other words, exposition, what does that word mean? To exposit. What does that mean? Explain. To show. To explain the text. How can you explain the text well without Application. Wouldn't we agree that if you failed to tell the people where this fits in their life, have you really explained the text? I mean, really? Not really. You've given them again head knowledge, but the Bible's never focused on head knowledge. The, the, God, the, the God of the Bible has never said, well, just fill your mind. He's always said the purpose of filling the mind was to conform the life. To change from the heart. We're going to look at that in today's sermon out of Zechariah 7. It's meaningless, really, to get a lot of knowledge. Actually, it's dangerous to fill our minds with knowledge and not apply the knowledge. As we fill our minds, we're becoming more and more accountable to the very specifics of the the call of Scripture. We're becoming more and more accountable. And, And if we're doing less and less with what we know... Uh, that's a dangerous position to be in, wouldn't we all agree? To know and not to do is, is very dangerous when we're talking about the Lord. It also helps to focus us in, in, in the text of the Scripture. So um, when we're looking at a passage, there may be, um, there's, there should be, if you've done well in selecting your text as we talked about earlier, there's only one major point. But there may be three, four, five, six, eight... Uh, parts that build to that major point. And if there's no good application, if there's nothing that says, this is what I'm supposed to carry away from this text for me, for my family, for my life, if there's nothing like that, then what tends to happen is people make their own application. And they're going to tend to go to fragmented points. In other words, you're reading through a moral list and they pick out the one that they think best... They need the most work on. They don't pay attention to any of the other stuff. And so they miss the overall uh, point of the message, and it seems fragmented, and it seems uh, disconnected. So all the information of a sermon has helped to bring in the focus when we apply a text. Okay? Application gives the listeners the who, uh, I mean, excuse me, the, uh, the what, where, why, and how of a text. When we look at what... We're looking at instruction from the text for the listener's life. It's instruction. Okay? Um, If an example of that, if we just take the Bible and turn to Romans 8, we'll be in Romans 8 today, you know, making application. Um, Let's just look at, uh, we'll just jump in in verse 12. We could start anywhere, really, but let's look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you, do, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. So you come to a text like this and you say, the what of the application. The what is... The what is to say, it you know, it's it you can find it right here in verse thirteen. We must live by the Spirit as sons of God, and so we begin to apply there. The what is that we are sons of God, and so we're living by the Spirit, and having been living by the Spirit, now we go into. Uh, that in an application where what situation does this text apply in Well, it applies in the the situation of sanctification right if you live by the flesh you will die if you live by the spirit you will live this is sanctification and there are any number of, of situations in life that this applies to why? Why should we? Why should we? Uh, what, what should, why We've got the what and the where, but why? What's the motivation? How does Paul motivate us in this text? Do I? Yeah. You're sons of God. So live like a son of God. Not like the flesh. Not like the world. His motive, he's got a second motivator, too. What is it? Yeah, there's, there's a real fear motivation here. Now, he operates out of it often, Paul does in his, in his teachings. If you live by the flesh, what, what's going to happen? You die. But that, is, that is written so that it's like a knife of precision. It goes directly into the heart of the listener and says... You're living by the flesh. You don't think it's a big idea? There's a big problem with this? You're going to die. I mean, it's thunderous. How? How do we live then? Enabling power. That's the question we're asking in any text is, what's the enabling power of of the Holy Spirit to obey? Well, In this text, the enabling power comes from the Holy Spirit. If you look here, uh, so then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. So, the, the, the power is the Spirit. And what is He enabling us to do? To put the flesh to death. To, to, to kill the flesh. And so... As you, uh, as you teach in, in a text like this or any other text, these questions, what, where, why, how, is, is really what can help pull out for you application to give to a congregation. Now, something that I um, have wrestled with but come to um, believe is probably the best, though I don't do it as well as I should, I'm still working at this, Is that the application should be given throughout the the, the, the sermon, not at the end of the sermon? Now, uh, some of our heroes, like uh, the Puritans, almost all the Puritans had two sections in their in their sermons. Right, they had the exposition and they had the application. All right, their sermons also averaged somewhere between an hour and two hours in today's world, the preacher preaches two hours and he holds the application to the last 30 minutes. What's the likelihood anybody gets the application? Honestly. Huh? Not, not, not very good. Right? If he preaches an hour and he holds it to the last 15 minutes, what's, what's, what's going to happen? People tend to get tired in listening. And secondly... Why would you hold it until the end? If the point is that the people not go home with more head knowledge but more heart knowledge, shouldn't we be giving that to them in chunks throughout the sermon so that when, when the point is completed and made, the application is right there for them. It's, it's, it's being applied. Questions are being asked. The heart is being challenged. What tends to happen in a sermon that has exposition and an application is that the, the, the mind is engaged in the first part of the sermon and the heart is engaged at the very end. And what I'm looking at is the mind engaged, the heart engaged. The mind engaged, the heart engaged. This interplay that not only keeps a person attentive, but, but works hard at getting to the heart. I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a flawed you know, technique to wait, to hold. Uh, for several reasons. Each point should be applied. Dr. Herschel York at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary says, when a preacher, in, in his preaching class, he grades this way. When a preacher makes a point, it should be application. So his main points are not, Paul said, fight the Spirit. His ap- main point would be, we must fight By the Spirit to kill the flesh. We must. That that imperative statement is application. It's telling the listener what to do with the text of Scripture. Okay? Uh, You could get in several points. Uh, We should never live by the flesh. We should always live by the Spirit. We must fight the flesh with the Spirit. Those are three points in his sermon on, on Romans 8. Okay, and so they're all application. The main point, so that if somebody's taking notes or if they're mentally keeping track, they go home knowing what they're supposed, what this text means for their life. How do they use this in their life? And the point of the sermon is uh, the main points of the sermon. are All application statements, and each subpoint should then only support the main point. It's application. In other words, you don't want to make 18 and I have six, uh, you don't have three main points, and underneath each one, six subpoints, and, and have 18 uh, 18 uh, uh, applications. That's, that's not what you want to do. You want to have uh, one large application explained in three ways in your main points, and everything underneath those main points only feeds to help us understand that main point, support. It plays a supporting, a subordinate role in the sermon. So um, that's why when preparing a sermon for his class and you lay awake at night wondering did that really apply or not. Was that the application of the apostle when he wrote the text? And and you you get up and preach nervously and hope he is kind. Look look over in the Gospels at the way Jesus teaches. Matthew chapter 5, his most famous sermon the longest recorded sermon of Jesus. I'm not sure we got the, all of the sermon in, the, in this. I think we got the highlights. There's probably more said than this, in other words. But let's look what he does. In the first, uh, from verse t- 3 until verse 11, we had the Beatitudes, what are now called the Beatitudes, pithy statements of Jesus is applied immediately, isn't it? Blessed are the pure in heart. What? What's the application? If you're pure in heart, what? You see God. You see how Jesus does the application? He doesn't hold it to the very end of the sermon. He's telling them as He speaks how this works in their life immediately. It's not just there, though. I mean, if you look at all of the paragraphs in, in the sermon, look down at verse 21. You've heard that it was said, that those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But, here, here it comes. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That is application. He enters immediately into Application. He says, you heard it said you shouldn't murder anyone and I'm telling you if you're angry you're going to be judged. He does that with all of it. With lust, with divorce, with oaths, with retaliations, with the love of your enemies. Verse 43, look what he says. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This... Again, immediate application. Don't just love your neighbors. That's what the Gentiles do. Love your neighbors and your enemies. He does it with fasting. Look what he does with fasting. Verse Chapter 6, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. Jesus' teachings, in, first of all, are, are very practical. And second of all, they're applied immediately. He just, and, and that's not just in this. That's just the largest sermon. I mean, all of His sermons, He does this in some form or fashion where He gives His statement of what he, his main point is, and then he gives you the follow-up. And the reason I think that there's more there is because obviously this is a very uh, compact kind of writing. I can't imagine the Lord said just these words. I think he said much more. I think the little sermon was an, one of those all-day events where people get hungry and tired and ready to go home. But this 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 uh, style of application sometimes can come across um, in in a not so healthy way. We can um, become so application driven that we begin to lay our applications on the text. We don't grab from the text its application, but rather we make an application. Uh, out of our own hearts, out of our own minds, something that we, we want uh, the people to do. And so that usually happens when we become too narrow in our application. So you had to work not to become too narrow. Narrow application can be effective, but it can, also, uh, it can also, one, put your thought into the text, and two, it can tune out about 75% of your audience. Just for an example, if your application is no wider than be a loving husband and then a, then a story of how you should love your wife, what happens? The wives say, well, he's preaching to husbands. I'm done today. I get a day off, right? Single people wrongly say, He's not preaching to me today. I'm out. All right? So if you become too narrow, then you lose segments of the, the audience. So I think, the, I think when we hear uh, someone say, don't apply the sermon, uh, the spirit applies the sermon, that's what they mean. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a narrow view, a definition of application. It is, don't give them the A, B, C, D, E, F, and G of application. Number one, you can't do it very well. And number two, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. When you get down that specific, that narrow, um, you're, you've gone too far. We've all, you know, a, a sermon on giving, we've all heard it. First, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, a guy does a wonderful job, and, and, and he begins to say, you should give... And then he fills in the blank. You should give uh, 20% or 15% or whatever the specific number of your giving should be to God's work. Well, what if somebody was sit there and they were really convicted to give 75%? And then you said 20%. And then what happens? They say, well, forget 75%. I'm going to give 20%. You see what happens? If you become narrow, too narrow, you go beyond the Scripture. Because in 2 Corinthians nine, Paul doesn't give us percentages. He says that it comes from the heart, and so application stays on the level of where's your heart at. What's the condition of your heart when it comes to giving? Are you a cheerful giver or are you a begrudging giver? Do you see it as your duty or do you see it as delight? This is the kind of application that's effective because then it opens that person up to say, no, my heart is filled with wicked drudgery when it comes to giving. I feel like God is fleecing me for 10% and I don't really want to give it. And so the application is, well then, that's a heart level issue. That needs to be dealt with before the Lord rather than these very narrow, very specific, very pointed statements. So I think... To bring the two schools together, the two groups together, closer together, I think it's fair to say that those who um, really in our day have a hard time with application, it's because of the misuse they have seen for years of application, which is there has to be narrow, specific, um, to do list kind of application. And so what they're saying is, I can't, I'm not, I don't believe that's right. I'm not going to do that. So when they say I don't apply, because you know, the people I hear that, that I respect that have said that, they, they apply the message all the time. They're giving application constantly. They just don't give the bullet point to-do list, that kind of application. So I think what happens with this wide gap is like a lot of times, a definition of application for the guy that's saying don't apply us to the Holy Spirit's job is probably don't make to-do lists in your sermon for the people to go home and do and on this side, the people who are saying apply all the time, like Dr. York, he's obviously not meaning do the to-do list. He's saying grab the application of the text as you're teaching it and give it plainly to the people. The biblical application of the text. All right, let's, uh, any questions so far about application? Well, I think it's definitely possible. He's asking if we have, uh, in our day, if we have altar calls because of the lack of application. I definitely think altar calls at times that I've sat through were obvious reaches. In other words, you know, you hear a preacher preaching just for the same example. Second Corinthians 9, it's about giving. It's obviously about giving. He, he mentions nothing about the gospel. The whole sermon, really nothing and then at the end of the sermon he says now bow your head and close your eyes now you're here today and you don't know the Lord you need to know the Lord well you haven't said anything about knowing the Lord really I mean you might have mentioned it as you talked about giving but you what are you inviting people to do how are they to know the gospel you haven't really delivered the gospel you've just Delivered a good teaching on giving, probably, and that's kind of where it needs to hang out. It needs to stay there, and so a lot of times they are forced. We, I, one of the pastors um, that I served with and under, um, used to say uh, the ABCs at the end of every sermon. It was A, admit; B, believe; C, confess. And it was every week. It was every week, every altar call. That's what. No matter what he preached on. And so um yeah, I think sometimes that does happen. They feel the need to give people something to do. Uh to apply the texts or to apply something. It kind of the the yeah. Yeah, and and like anything else, I mean if it's the same thing every week after fifty two weeks even much less if you're there 15, 20 years, how well do people even listen to that sermon, I mean, to that <laughs> altar call anymore after they've been in the church for so long? I mean, it's just like tune out. Now it's time to start thinking about what restaurant we're going to go eat at. And it, it, it's, it's really, it, meant, it, it mocks almost uh, the seriousness of coming to Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get a real decisional uh, real decisional thing. Let's look at... uh, I've looked at some easy ones to apply, okay? Let's look at one that's maybe not so easy. 1 Corinthians 15. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, it is a highly practical sermon, right? I mean, Jesus is being very practical. In Romans 8, again, Paul is in a very practical mode saying... War against the flesh. I mean, that, that's something we can all talk about. That all right? But when you get to like 1 Corinthians fifteen, <clears throat> and you're looking at the resurrection of the dead, how do you apply the resurrection of the dead? Go home and die. Believe that the Lord will raise you. I, I mean, you know, it, that's it, it's more difficult. It gets more difficult when you're in a text like this to apply. Not a practical text. So let's just uh, look just at a paragraph here. Um, forty-two. Let's just start in forty-two. So is it when the resurrection of the dead with the resurrection of the dead? What is sown is perishable; what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor; it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness; it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body; it's raised a spiritual body. And as, it is, as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And, and it's verse 49, at the end of that paragraph, is what allows us to apply all the rest of that text. How will we apply it? Yeah, we're image bearers, right? If you're an image bearer of the first Adam, you're a natural person. Or you're an image bearer of the second Adam and you're a man of heaven. You're a person from heaven. And so now we can go back and you can actually apply any of those little uh, perishable, imperishable, dishonor, glory, weakness, power, natural body, spiritual body. You can apply all of those really now to not life in the future, but where? life right now 58 is the major wrap-up for the whole chapter therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that in the lord your labor is not in vain but what are we laboring to now we get back to that secondary or that that paragraph really we're laboring towards sanctification which is the image bearing of the son of god In this life, not in the future only. What we actually see is that, and if you were preaching a series on 1 Corinthians 15, what you want to do is help people understand that because Christ was raised from the dead, the future has become come into the now. It has broken backwards into the now. It is the light of the resurrection has not just gone off into eternity, but it's come backward in time to us. And so now everyone who is in Christ, bears His resurrected image today in the new man. And so now we, we're talking about your life right now is imperishable. Your spiritual life is, isn't it? Your spirit cannot die. Your spirit will not suffer death. And so you, you can apply even to say what this doesn't mean is that you can go live like a drunkard. Because the perishable and the imperishable have nothing to do with one another. So now that you're imperishable, your true inner man is imperishable, you should have nothing to do with drunkenness. You should have nothing to do with sexual immorality. You should have nothing to do with abusing your children. You should have nothing to do... I mean, there's... there's now we get into that uh, area where once we've made the big application, people can take it and, and use it in their life however the Spirit wills. We can say... Um, that we, we can actually say that what Paul is teaching here is that to be any earthly good, you must be you must be heavenly-minded. You must be a man of heaven. To be any earthly good, you must be a here and now man of heaven. Holy, set apart. Uh, another text just this to this show, First uh, Corinthians 10, verse 23. Uh, it's actually going to prove the point further of what these guys are talking about about misapplying the text. If um, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's warning the Corinthians about idolatry and about food offered to idolatry and uh, the practices surrounding idolatry in their day, which is feasting and um, uh, sexual. Uh, perversion and all the things again so he's warning against that in first Corinthians 10: 23 he says all things are lawful but all not all things are helpful all things are lawful but not all things build up let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of what for, of that for which I give thanks. So therefore, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the big application here. Give no con, uh, no offense to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I say, try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So, Here, this great apostle is teaching them about uh, sin in the area of liberty. But I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who tell me with a straight face, I mean, I can do anything. I can, can, anything's lawful. Anything's lawful. And then they use that to include uh, the use of pornography. I had a pastor, a pastor I was speaking with. <clears throat> he married a girl that we were in college with, and she called desperate for help because he was um, openly using pornography in their home. And when I called and confronted him, his, his, his defense was 23 and 24. All things are lawful to me. Not all things are helpful. I admit that what I'm doing is not helpful, but it's not sinful. That's a strange twist on this text, isn't it? But people do it. That's not at all what he's talking about here. What is he talking about? He's talking about the gray area called Christian liberty where we no longer are bound by what we eat and what we drink based on the law, like the ceremonial law, which we once were bound by. The the Old Testament saints were bound They would have had to ask the question, has this been offered to idols? But he's saying, you don't have to ask that question now you're in Christ. Don't even ask. Don't worry about it. Just go ahead and eat. But now if they tell you to show you how sensitive Paul was, if they tell you, we offered this to an idol last night, got it at a discount at the market. Don't eat it. Why? Because you don't want them who are idolaters to stumble because of you. Because they believe by eating what they offered to the idol, they were gaining the strength of the idol. They were gaining the blessing of the idol. So he says, don't participate in that. So see, this has nothing to do with something that was an outright sin like pornography, sexual perversion, cheating on your wife. Those things things are unlawful. They're not lawful. okay? But here's something that's not forbidden in the core of of the law, but rather in the ceremonial law. And now that the ceremonial law is passed, you're not bound by it anymore. You have liberty. But don't use your liberty to cause others to sin Okay, I've heard it misapplied another way too, that's the extreme on one end and I've heard the extreme on this end of this means you cannot uh, by scripture you, in our culture it's wrong to drink a beer it's a sin if you go to a restaurant you drink a beer you're sinning and you say why? and they, they go to this text they say well you might offend somebody Okay, well now wearing blue shirts is offensive too, so Bruce offended me, so he's sinning. I mean, he says specifically, I don't let other people bind me. He says that in the text. It's not their conscience which binds me. I have liberty. If I partake with thankfulness, I'm not being denounced because I take thankfully. But what the principle here is, is if I go into a setting, to, for instance, a home of one of these uh, people in my neighborhood who I know uh, is a drunkard. He offers me a drink. I won't take the drink. Why? Not to show him I'm a prude or self-righteous, but to say, this is killing you, man. Don't drink. You don't need to drink. In other words... This text is specifically talking about interpersonal relationship, not in general living in a society. This is talking about people we know we are offending, people we know who have a sinful problem. Not that you're out in general public. I mean, it's offensive for you to spank your child too. You're going to not do that? I mean, where does the line stop? In just general. But now if Jason is, is highly convinced and convicted from his heart that drinking is wrong, and he invites me to his house, I'm not bringing him alcoholic beverage to his house. Why? Because that's offending him. And so because I, just because I can do something doesn't mean I do it. Because it's, I'm in an interpersonal relationship with Jason. I care about him. I love him. And so, now, that's why application is so important. Is either of those two extremes can obliterate the meaning of the passage. Kill it. it loses its spiritual power if we're not careful in application. And so, the, 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 as I said, verse 31 is the overall application of the text. Whatever you eat and whatever you drink, do all to the glory of God. I mean, you know, uh, examples of, of that run the gamut, but, but one of the most famous is Piper's um, devotion. On this text, in Taste and See, where he tells people to drink a glass of orange juice to the glory of God. say, how do you drink orange juice to the glory of God? I just drink it. (laughs) Well, you drink it to the glory of God by praising God as you drink the orange juice. Praising God for for not just the taste of the orange juice, but how the taste got in the orange juice. How did the taste get in the orange juice? God created the minerals... In the soil, which came up through the root of the tree and the sap and then into the fruit. And not only the minerals from the soil, which made that orange so sweet. Because if you eat an orange from one part of the continent and then eat an orange from another part of the continent, it may taste totally different. What a beautiful variation of orange juice. I drink Florida orange juice and you drink California orange juice and they don't taste the same. Unless they're from concentrate. And then we can argue whether it's really orange juice or not. But I'm talking about fresh orange juice, right? Something without uh, chemical molecular uh, alterations in it. I'm talking about a real orange that you squeezed and you drank. The pulp. I mean, there's just so many ways to praise God for a glass of orange juice. And the sun it took to develop and ripen. That, and, the, and the air temperature, and I mean, everything God did to get the orange on the tree and then in your glass is praiseworthy. So drink it to the glory of God. That's a great application. And if you're not able to do that, fast and pray and ask God to give you thankfulness for what you have. Because if you eat without thankfulness, it's a sin. Just like if you live without thankfulness, it's a sin. We, we blaspheme God and His goodness towards us every day, don't we? And sometimes we do it with a, with a trite little prayer before the, before the meal. Now we've applied the text faithfully, helpfully. We've said what it says, what it doesn't say. And we've even given a specific like orange juice. But, that, but, but we know we can do it with anything. right? That's the... That, that's the art of application. It's what brings the sermon home from lecture to the <laughs> mind to sword to the heart. Did you have something? You reared back like you wanted to say something. I did, but <laughs> we go, go. I saw you, so go ahead and let Eric talk. I, say, I think that the only way to do that is to apply the text... Faithfully as it would have been applied and taught in in this day, in other words, what did Paul want his hearer to hear in form of application and then apply it that way and, and and I think the more you are able to apply in the sermon, the better because what I think happens sometimes, not all the time but it's because we're not very spiritually astute any longer we've kind of grown dull in our hearing but the hour example, preaching for an hour and then applying for 15 minutes, somewhere along 35, 40, 50 minutes, people shut off. So when you told applications, they didn't wait back up. They just, they're they they're gone. So they literally did not hear what you said. I mean, they they knew you were talking. They didn't know what you are talking about. Okay, So that's why I am saying, if it's possible, if you can do it, and some people were not comfortable doing it, and I understand that, and... You know, if you can, it's better to 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 intermix that application and weave it into the sermon as you're preaching, and uh, that'll help Eric. Yeah, I think he's one of the best application teachers in our day. He, uh, I encourage you to get meditation t- his meditations, uh, taste and see. They're in book form. They're wonderful. He has one in there about Job. Where Job is uh, crying out to God, and he mentions that the rain comes from the over, is, is pulled up into the clouds over the sea and comes into the desert and rains down a blessing on your life. And then he talks about, for the whole rest of the time, he's talking about the hydrological cycle and how that brings awe. If our hearts are where they're supposed to be, that should make us leave in awe of God. That. Water is picked up, and he gives the exact mileage from there to where Job was probably located from the sea. How far it traveled without raining itself out, without falling in a, in a tidal wave so that it would crush whatever was on it, but it gently rains down out of the clouds from the sea all the way into the desert and then drops a gentle blessing on Job's life. I mean, and then you, he's right. When you leave, you're in tears about the fact it rains. And God did that. And now you leave with a heart that understands if God does that, if he orders rain clouds so that they drop blessings on my life, what else is he doing? You know, how magnificent is God? Absolutely. That's the side, that's the far side um, the people struggle with. What I said at the beginning, they struggle with with only application. Because the application is just kind of dangling. If you think about the house... um, Exegesis is the foundation. Exposition is the, is the house, in my mind, and you know you build in stories and all the little all the chairs and tables and all that. That's application. So if you have chairs and tables and no house, what good did it do? If you don't do exegesis of the text to build a foundation that's solid, the house will fall. I mean, they, 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 this will be useless to them. So you explain a text without telling us, you know, without you having done the work, even if you don't bring it forward. The thing about exegesis is, if you're good at it, people don't necessarily know that's what you're doing. They don't even realize it. Most of this stays in the study. It's inside of you. A little may come out, but most of it doesn't. Most of what comes out is the house. The exposition, the explanation. But how do you know you're explaining? Exegesis is the meaning of the text. Is the going into the pieces and parts, the verbs and subjects and adjectives, and distilling the meaning of the text. If you don't have the meaning of the text, you can't explain it. So, although this isn't necessarily out there, you can think of it as a, as a, you can think of it as a skeleton. You have the bones. That's exegesis. You have the meat and the sinew. That's explanation, that's exposition. So you have exegesis is the skeletal structure, the bones, muscles, tissues, sinews, connectors, that's all exposition. And the clothes you put on the outside of it's application. You wouldn't go to your closet and say, that's a fine suit, go to church. The suit can't go to church. The suit suit is helpless without a skeleton, without meat. And so if we get too far on one side, we, we expose bones. Nobody likes to look at, you know, don't you get uneasy going, now David might not, but you know, you get uneasy going into the science lab and there's a skeleton hanging there. It's just kind of, I mean, just like, you know, come on. There's, there's animals and all types of decomposition. Now, my mom used to be a chemist and she did all biology and chemistry and all that at high school and you, she'd bring home jars of stuff half decomposed. And I'm like, that's just sick, you know? And that's the way a lot of our sermons are. They're half decomposed. They're half made. They've got a lot of this, a little bit of this, and no application. Or they've got all application and nothing else. And everybody kind of looks at them, and in their mind, they say, but that was kind of gross. I didn't, That's something odd about that. I don't know what happened." But when it's beautifully married, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Application can lead to severe religious attitude if it's left out on the limb by itself.